The Water Values Podcast, Session 70. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utilities, resources, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGimsey. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my son Joey said, I'm Dave McGimsey and thanks for joining me. Well, we've got a great guest coming up today. And before getting into that, I want to thank the individual uh, out there who awarded the podcast another five-star rating on iTunes. We greatly appreciate it if you enjoy the show to give both a rating and a review on iTunes. It's a great way to help the podcast reach others who might also be interested in water issues. Well, today's guest is recently retired longtime Colorado Supreme Court Justice Greg Hobbs. He was kind enough to come in for the interview just a couple days after he officially retired, when I'd probably uh, be getting used to sleeping in. Well, he's a well-known speaker on water law issues, and you won't be disappointed by the great interview he provides where he describes the doctrine of prior appropriation and its role in shaping development in the West. His recall is terrific, and he can name off treaties, cases, and other information rapid fire, so he's steeped in knowledge on water law issues. So sit back and enjoy gaining some wisdom from Justice Hobbs. With that said, let's get on with it. Open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Justice Hobbs, thank you so much for your time. I greatly appreciate you taking some time to come in and join us on the Water Values Podcast. To start off, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? I guess it was growing up as a kid, you know, in, in Alaska. My dad was stationed in the Air Force up there in 55 to 58. Uh, it's still a territory. And, uh, you know, they, they had big rivers up there. And he was a meat fisherman for the winter, you know. So he'd go down there with these big snag hooks on the, the Kenai and the Russian River. And he would uh, snag the salmon runs at different times of the summer and fall. And, of course, my brothers and I, the three of us, kind of grew up in a pack. Uh, I, I, Irish family, 15 months apart. <laughs> Uh, yeah, the three yeah. oldest boys. All right, so we'd have these little spin rods, and we'd be screwing around, snagging up our lines, you know, while he's catching these big fish. We're getting the little Dolly Vardens now. Now they're called bull trout, and they're endangered in a lot of the country. Yeah. So, and then we moved to Northern California in uh, 1958, and uh, I was always in scouting. That's what uh, our parents did. Air Force family parked us in the scout troop and the Catholic school if there was one available. <laughs> and then we had the whole Sierra Nevada because the summer camp for Marin Council, uh, we lived up in uh, San Rafael, north of San Francisco, was the Sierra. Yeah. What, what could be better than that? Oh, I bet that was a great experience for you. And then the Philmont Scout Ranch, uh, right out of high school, actually went to three Catholic high schools. The last one was uh, Central Catholic in San Antonio. Went to be a ranger at the Philmont Scout Ranch at the age of 17. That was just terrific. Yeah. Seven summers. In the 1960s, met my wife there. She was uh, 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 on the staff during the summers. Her dad was a school teacher. So they'd come down from Denver. So she's my anchor, fourth-generation Denver. Uh, the Rocky Mountains I discovered through the Philmont Scout Ranch where the Sangre de Cristo fall off onto the high plains. Yeah. I, Philmont is a, it was a fantastic experience for me. I, I went there as a scout. I, have, I didn't make Eagle, so I didn't get your benefit of having the, the option to be a counselor there. Um, 
but uh, again, a, a great experience. When I went, we did 130 miles in I think 10 days. So. Totally, that's that's about right. But you 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 stretched yourself. Some of those yeah. hikes are shorter, 55 uh, yeah. miles. But yeah. you you really did the big ones. Yeah, we did. It was a it was a fantastic experience. But um, well, let's talk a little about um, water, obviously, and water's impact on shaping how the West was formed and how how the West has developed. Uh, I know that you are quite the historian. Can you tell us a little about water's place in the development of the West? Well, water is everything. Well, we know that from uh, Mesa Verde. Uh, I've done some of the paleohydrologic work with the, the uh, Wright uh, Water Foundation down there in Mesa Verde and Hovenweep. In fact, we have a trip coming up at the end of September to go to the Square Tower. You know those towers up there in the, in the canyons and the canyons of the ancients and uh, so the story is that there were four reservoirs at Mesa Verde operating between 750 and 1180 A.D. There's another one out on the Sagebush Plain. So any place in the arid, semi-arid lands of the western North America, Central America, and South America, because there was, a, there was an aqueduct in uh, just near Cusco, Peru, that was built in 200 A.D., and I guarantee it wasn't built by the Romans. <laughs> so, so water is the lifeblood, the source of community, the source of all living things. And we share this characteristic of the, uh, of the Americas in the dry regions where governance around the available and scarce water supply becomes the whole key to community. And that leads directly to the water laws uh, of the uh, Spanish Mexicans, the Asequia the culture in northern New Mexico borrowed from Moorish southern Spain, another arid area, uh, by the mid-1800s, there were 350 acequias in northern New Mexico. And when we were carved uh, after uh, the United States took 40% of Mexico as a result of the Mexican-American War in the 1848 Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, uh, that treaty required the land grants to be recognized. So the oldest water right in Colorado is this, is on the Sangre de Cristo grant uh, right outside of the town of San Luis. It's an 1852 water right, been in continuous use. So when we came into existence in 1861 and the legislature passed that first Land and Water Act, we recognized the pre-existing water rights of the Hispanos as, as continuous uh, beneficial use. So that's our doctrine, actual beneficial use. Uh, if you abandon the water right, it goes to somebody else. Sure. And so let's, let's get into a little bit about... Uh, Prior appropriation, because that's clearly what you're what you're talking about. Can you give us some of the uh, the, the foundational aspects of pr- the prior appropriation doctrine? Definitely, be glad to. So uh, we become a territory in February of 1861. Uh, the Civil War has broken out. The South is seceding because Abraham Lincoln has been elected president. The writing's on the wall. Uh, he has stood up in his political career for a homesteading, free soil, anti-slavery. Western settlement in the area brought into the United States by the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo of 1848 and the Oregon Treaty of 1846. So the Louisiana Purchase of 1803 is the other big one, right? So here we go, west of the Mississippi, into the arid area, all this public domain land is coming in. Congress in in the uh, Mining Act of 1866 severs the water on the public land from the land itself creates separate legal estates. Homesteading, uh, as you know, allows 160 acres to be possessed for a five-year period, and then a patent is issued by the government. But the water was accorded by the United States Congress 
to the states and territories to be allocated the unappropriated water remaining on the public domain. So in 1861, our territorial legislature does two very radical things because the Eastern Water Law and the law of England, the common law, was the riparian law. Those that owned land up and downstream had a correlative right to to withdraw water, but when they did that, it was only really for water power and basic non-consumptive uses, flour mills, sawmills, etc. So you had to deliver the water back in the stream. We're out here beyond the 100th meridian where Stegner points out that John Wesley Powell had talked about the arid lands, that demarcation where there's less than 20 inches of annual uh, precipitation, you need irrigation to sustain crops. So this first 1861 act says that anyone, and it just mentions agricultural use, that needs to make an agricultural use can take water out of the stream to the place where it's necessary to be used across the intervening public and private lands. Two aspects then, the right to build a ditch and operate and maintain it despite what the underlying landowners have to say, and take the water for actual beneficial use. So a prior appropriation water right is for the actual beneficial use made of what remains in public ownership, the public's water resource. Now, that's all confirmed in our 1876 Constitution of the State of Colorado when we get admitted to the Union. And so the other wrinkle that came on was when you have this ditch right away, you have to pay just compensation uh, to the underlying landowner. So it's, it's a private right of condemnation. You have the right to take unappropriated water across the lands of another it to actual beneficial use. But actual use is the measure of the water right because this is an anti-monopoly, anti-speculation scheme. They did not. Our early territorial legislators, and basically in the Constitution, reaffirms this, did not want landowners tying up the water resource. So this is a law of water use severed from the land. Now that startles people, but it's a use right, a property use right in the public's water resource. Sure, and and so how how does that right that was created how did how did that impact development of of the West? Well, it it meant that that settlers were rewarded if they were able to harness unappropriated water subject to the rights of those that came before them uh, to do all the things you need to do for community. So first, it, first of all, farming you got to feed the miners, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> no, they, you know, law professors like to say the mining law, the West kind of invented the water law. That's crazy. I, I, I just never understood that. You know, it might have an idea having to do with the priority of rights, you know, because there were priority of mining claims. But that, that would translate to an agricultural water scheme anyway. As the water comes out of the, the hills, you know, it's basically used non-consumptively by the miners for sluicing and for, you know, uh, those hydraulic hoses that blasted the hillsides, the water would come back into the water course, and then as the streams exit onto the plains, they had to be diverted by the farmers and moved away from the stream to the agricultural land. And so then the return flows that come back from that irrigation, irrigation consumes about 50%. Another 50% is going into the subterranean uh, aquifer and overland, uh, you know, through tailwater ditches to the stream comes back as part of the public's resource and then is subject to appropriation again and again and again. That's why, you know, eight to ten uses are made from the headwaters of the South Platte down to the uh, border of Nebraska. You know, uh, sewer plants return the water, uh, irrigation return flows. So we built this agricultural, domestic, uh, municipal 
commercial, and now the in-stream flow water rights are slotted in by the legislature and the kayak course rights, all in order priority. And here's the thing we do the best in Colorado. The rights must be adjudicated by a neutral water court. So you know where the water is diverted from, how much water is diverted, what the use is, and where it is used. And if you want to change that right, you have to quantify the consumptive use measure from the cubic feet per second, which is the head that comes through the ditch. Quantify it in terms of actual beneficial use. Remember, that's the, that's the ground of the whole doctrine. And then you can transfer it, retaining the senior priority to a new or different use, but preserving the return flows for those who have already appropriated. So the system works in this mountain plains kind of alluvial aquifer, tributary groundwater, surface water system. We integrate, as opposed to California, they got a huge crisis going on right now because they're pumping down to the bottom of those aquifers as fast as they can because they don't recognize, even though nature provides this, that tributary groundwater feeds the surface stream. They have a pretend division in their law, which is coming back to bite them. Sure. And so you've, you've said a lot in there. I think um, the, the first point I want to emphasize is that the prior appropriation doctrine really came about from an economic perspective, right? It, in, order to, in order to get the West to develop, they needed to get that water away from just the repairing system where it could be monopolized. Whole deal. That's the whole deal. And, you know, Coffin v. Left Hand, 1881, right after our Constitution, the Colorado Supreme Court says we never have had in Colorado the riparian system. We abolish it. Well, California did this hybrid of, of you know, the common law uh, riparian system and prior appropriation, and they're paying the price today. Our predecessors recognized they wanted a clean, bold rule of law for settling Colorado. And most of the Western states took this Colorado doctrine, took the Colorado doctrine, but they placed it in an administrative context. Right after statehood, our legislature put it with the courts, the 1881 Act, put it in a neutral forum. Uh, they didn't give, we, we distrust full-time bureaucrats here in Colorado. <laughs> you, you notice that? Uh, yeah, sure. We, we try to devolve everything to the local level. And so we didn't want the federal government or the state government or even local government to decide how this most valuable of all resource was going to be allocated. It's an entrepreneurial pro-settlement policy. Yeah. I, I agree wholeheartedly. I think you've said a lot there that, uh, that makes a tremendous amount of sense and really explains a lot of how, how development, in particularly Colorado, came about. Uh, can you expand on the court system and how how that's set up how uh you know what what's the the basics for someone who wants to get a water right what what would they do well they go to and file an application in one of our seven water courts in 1969 borrowing from an old chapter of john wesley powell he said you know watersheds ought to be count the county jurisdiction throughout the west that's really you know he's misquoted all the time for, by everybody but what he said was, you know, we ought to have local control of water and watersheds along with the timber, uh, the mining activity, uh, the grazing and all this, in settled in districts. And if there were an interstate district, which there could be, uh, then there ought to be special rules for that district and there ought to be a water court. Now, isn't that interesting? Because 
just think about this man who believed that the history of the West was going to be perpetually agrarian. That's really what he said, like Thomas Jefferson, and that all the streams in the West might be dried up. But even if they were, only 5% of the land that could be converted to agriculture by irrigation could actually be converted because we have it a limited supply. So he recognized that conflict would be endemic with a system of fair water allocation. So he has this idea of courts, you know, starting in 1879, perfected in 1890 when he goes to the Montana Convention. Well, we have this act of 1881 that starts with courts issuing decrees, but we made a mistake back then. We allowed the local district court to decide the case. Well, that district court was not looking at all the interrelated water rights that were now being that were coming onto the stream and needed to be adjudicated. So we have 22 judicial districts. Well, there they had 70 water districts. <laughs> and depending on what the water district was, uh, then you would go to that court where the water district was. Well, in 1969, some brilliant legislators, after two years study that, that the legislature commissioned of, of, of fabulous attorneys and engineers, came up with a system of seven water courts. So just think about our basins, the South Platte uh, Division One, the Arkansas Division Two, the Rio Grande Division Three, the Gunnison Uncompadre Division Four, the main stem of the Colorado Division Five, uh, the Yampa White North Platte, that silly stream and the Laramie that go north into Wyoming, right? But right. they're part of the Platte River system, Division Six, and then that whole southwest Colorado there the San Juan, the Animas, uh, part of the Dolores, uh, the Pine, you know, all of those, Water Division 7. So you file an application with the clerk of the water court in this hydrologic basin, and the applications can be for new conditional rights, uh, which is a placeholder in the priority system to get all the permits and financing together. Then you go in for an absolute water right that, that you have perfected your water right by actual beneficial use. Then you get a decree confirming that. And then if you want to change the water right, uh, keeping the, the senior priority date, you got to do one or two th- one of both things. You have to quantify it in terms of historic consumptive use, and you have to protect against injury to all other water rights on the stream. So you can't mess with the return flow pattern. So change your water rights. And the fourth category is augmentation plans. If you want to divert out a priority... In a scarce water year where the engineer is locking down the head gates, junior to senior, you have a plan for replacing your depletions that would hit the stream at another time, drop it out of a reservoir, uh, you know, put it back in the groundwater system on the off-season. We have credits being generated in the Arkansas and the Platte by these unlined ditches and augmentation pits, okay? Then you can generate credits the state engineer has a water supply where the senior is not injured. You are not curtailed. So that is the most flexible mechanism we have in the West, you know, put into our 69 Act. Water courts plus these four kinds of applications and the ability to uh, disengage from the curtailment scheme if you have a handy supply of water the state engineer can administer to the otherwise injured seniors. Got it. Now, when you were talking about how the the Colorado water court system uh, came about and we're, a lot of this, the, the local issues, when you have the prior appropriation state, they have to they have to interact with other states as well. And so how how do we go about interacting with these other states? We know there's, there's there are compacts, but can you talk a little about how that whole 
interstate relationship uh, and the prior appropriation doctrine work together? Uh, terrific question. Well, we found out the hard way. Kansas sued Colorado in 1902. We took the position because we were admitted in 1876 under the equal footing doctrine. That means equal to the original colonies. Everybody could see we had prior appropriation in our constitution, so we could take what we wanted. The downstream states would get the rest. Well, Kansas' position was we were Colorado, which they were. The Arkansas up to the, you know, to the divide uh, and, and north to Nebraska territory. And they formed in 1854 had the riparian system. So they said... In their complaint to the U.S. Supreme Court, by the way, the U.S. Supreme Court has equitable jurisdiction over interstate disputes. This is a prototype interstate dispute, you know, over the water allocation that a downstream state can have. So Kansas said riparianism. Come on. We were here first. Delivered all. (laughs) And then the Reclamation Act had just been passed in 1902. And the Reclamation Bureau, you know, the Justice Department always arms up with lawyers looking at the federal interest, said, well, look at all the remaining Water that's been unallocated, you know, that's unappropriated still in the West is now reserved for the use of the reclamation program, and individual reclamation projects will dispense it. Well, in 1907, when the U.S. Supreme Court finally gets around to deciding this, that's the one they throw at first, the government. (laughs) They say, that's ridiculous. You know, Congress did not intend in a pro-settlement time, which it still was, to put all the rest of the water in the U.S. to decide how to allocate. So that, that, that one went out. And plus there was a savings clause. Section 8 of the Reclamation Act is a savings clause for state water law and its operation. So then the court told Colorado and Kansas, I'm sorry, you know, uh, we have equitable apportionment jurisdiction. Now, they're just announcing this for the first time, right? Sure. The, sure. West, the western states are, you know, already in gear, and they're awarding these beneficial use water rights through an administrative or, in our case, a judicial system, confirming them. And, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's King's X on that now because the Supreme Court, the nine of them, from time to time can determine what the equities are between an upstream and a downstream state. Can you imagine that? How many Westerners do we have on the cur- current U.S. Supreme Court? Well, I hadn't thought about that. That are, that are all familiar, you know, by growing up or working in the system. I'd say zero. Yep. <laughs> I agree with that. You know, Justice Kennedy is from California, but, you know, as far as I can see, he, he's one of those coasters. You know, right. the East Coast, the West Coast. We, we had O'Connor and Rehnquist from Arizona they def- and White from Colorado. They knew the Western water laws and prior appropriation. They worked with it. So just imagine if the U.S. Supreme Court, without any of this background, depending on individual briefs, gets to decide from time to time what the equities are in interstate disputes. Well, to head all of that off, Delph Carpenter of Colorado, first generation, growing up in the Union colony we now call Greeley, served in the Colorado legislature, served one term, 1909 to 1911, got voted out. All the legislators turned to him and said, you're our water guy. Now, we were in interstate disputes now with Kansas and Wyoming under this equitable apportionment doctrine. And so Carpenter seizes on the compact clause of the U.S. Constitution that had been used to adjust boundaries in the east as rivers change course. You imagine the problem that causes with taxing districts? <laughs> <laughs> and where you reside and all that? Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so you know, this guy was a constitutional scholar, Delph Carpenter of Greeley, Colorado, and he suggests this compact idea. And, of course, the 1922 Compact Commission convenes in uh, Colorado Compact Commission convenes in Washington, D.C. in January uh, of, of uh, 
1922. See, that's the key year. And then, of course, we get the Colorado River Compact and eight others, portioning the water that arises off the Continental Divide, mostly through snowmelt, but, you know, augmented by precipitation events. Aren't we getting some terrific precipitation events now other Mm. than snowpack? But the punchline is because of this equitable apportionment jurisdiction, the compacts, we can only consume in Colorado one-third of the water that Colorado produces in the South Platte, the Arkansas, the Rio Grande, and the Colorado River tributaries that arise in Colorado. One-third. We got to deliver two-thirds of the water out of state. Yeah, that's and and this was this was all agreed upon in the 1922 compact on the Colorado River the Colorado and then River. all the other rivers were compacted and also this strange Republican River that arises in the eastern plains we Coloradans forget about it when we're facing you know the continental divide from the east we're looking west and those on the west are looking east and they forget that one third of Colorado is the high plains and this Republican River arises arises out of the high plains and flows into Kansas and Nebraska. So there's a Republican River Compact as well. Right. And one of the things I found very interesting uh, that I hadn't really thought about was you indicating the dearth of justices on the U.S. Supreme Court and the number of water disputes that are going on. There was the there was the Red River dispute a few years ago. Uh, New Mexico and Texas are embroiled in a fight right now. So it'll be very— I think Yeah, on the Pecos. Yeah, it'll be very interesting— to see how uh, the U.S. Supreme Court handles those cases uh, without without someone on staff who, or I shouldn't say on staff, without a justice that that you know grew up in the in the prior appropriation. Well, these are smart people. Yes, and they like to delegate. So special <laughs> masters are appointed to be in effect the fact finding judges who make reports, and then if you study those decisions, they generally defer to that special master unless you know they get a wild hair in there and yeah. decide to fiddle with a little bit. But <laughs> mostly they've been fiddling with damages and equitable remedies and stuff. Uh, generally, the factual findings, which they consider themselves bound by, just like any trial court, when you go to an appellate court, you know, the, the appellate yeah. court is not making findings. So the Supreme right. Court has figured out how to use their powers. And, and I think they do love these water cases when they get them. They pretend that they don't, but it's a special Breed and brand, and you know the one that uh, Justice uh, Sonia Sotomayor decided a couple of years ago when Texas wanted to go into Oklahoma and divert water that claimed they had a right to under the Red River in the Red River Share. Uh, they 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 felt that they would be able to go right into Oklahoma and and erect diversion points, and the Supreme Court says no. You know this is there's an idea of sovereignty here. Get your Red River water when it comes into Texas. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good point. Um, so you are very uh, engaged and active in water education matters, and I know that you're, uh, you're heavily involved with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education. Could you tell us a little about your experiences with the CFWE? Well, it's an incredible water foundation. There's one other in California based in Sacramento that we were kind of patterned off of. But in 2002, you remember, huge drought lasted into 2003 and the reservoirs were going bone dry. The dust was coming off Dillon Reservoir and stuff like that. The legislature decided they needed to engage Coloradans in all matters of water. So they set up a legislation for a nonprofit, non political water foundation. 
became the Colorado Foundation for Water Education. I've been on there since the original board meeting in October of 2002. I'm chair of the Publications Committee. This has been a fabulous organization. We put out 10 citizen guides, in-depth review of topics like water law, uh, interstate compacts, which you and I just went over, uh, trans uh, uh, basin diversions, seven other topics, and then 38 headwaters magazines, uh, which talk about the people, the basins, the uses, uh, everything water in Colorado. Water touches everything. So it's interesting. We wondered when we started this magazine in 2003, what, what can we talk about? Are we going to run out of topics? Never <laughs> possible in the water world to run out of topics. So the legislature puts in, uh, through the Water Conservation Board, $150,000 a year in seed money. It's, it's up to the board to try to get uh, individuals and organizations to come up, you know, uh, three times that amount to uh, get the foundation where we can have a, a very good staff, which we do right now. We need to keep it going. Sure. And so how, how have you seen it grown over the, the 13 intervening years? I mean, it's, it's obviously you've got a good foundation and things are going well. So how, how has it, what, what's been the path to the current, current state? Uh, good boards. A uh, uh, lot of terrific interest. Uh, Dan Lukey, who was instrumental in doing the environmental planning for the Two Forks veto, which vetoed that big 24 miles of stream that would have been inundated just west of Denver. Just to give you an idea. He serves on our board. Uh, we try to get uh, people from all elements of the, of the water community. Obviously, the Denver Water Board is involved in the Northern Water District and the Southeast District and the River District and the Southwest District, the Rio Grande District. Beyond that, engineering firms, individuals interested in water. Uh, we have a water leadership program that's in its fifth year, bringing up water leaders, uh, 12 to 15 a year. Uh, we have a, uh, uh, a course now in water fluency uh, that's open to members of the public. Now, it seems like a lot of uh, local government officials are getting into this, you know, special district people, uh, city uh, council people, uh, county commissioners, and others. This water fluency course is a basic uh, six-part course in water law and policy. So we're doing that. Uh, we have these river basin tours every year. Mm -hmm. we, we alternate to another river basin, invite the public and interested legislators and everybody else to come in and be part of a tour, take a look on the ground at the water and environmental problems in that basin and the infrastructure that's been put in. So you can go to the, yourwatercolorado.org, yourwatercolorado.org, the website. You can see all these different activities, bike rides, down this great bikeway we have in Denver looking at water features and just seeing now how we rebuilt Denver since the early 70s along Cherry Creek in the South Platte. You remember that? When it was a trashway, a sewerway, car bodies. The industrial dump right. has been reclaimed for the high-end residential, commercial, recreational pathway all through Denver. And I'd say throughout the country. Uh, yeah. you, you see cities are realizing the potential of the waterfront, whereas it used to be uh, the last place you'd want to live or last place you'd want to go uh, because of the pollution, you know, now cities are cleaning that up and finding, finding water to be instrumental to economic development to bring us full circle to how we kind of started our talk today uh, with the, the doctrine of prior appropriation really being an economic policy uh, 
doctrine of, of how the West was developed. Truly, but we have different values now. Sure. You know, recreation and environment are very important to Coloradans. And so now we have water rights for in-stream flow, 9,000 miles held by the Water Conservation Board. Local governments and special districts can appropriate kayak course rights. You know, you do the flipsy doozy during lunchtime, you know, on your break. <laughs> or you, they, they bring in, you know, these, these events, kayak course events. Hey, so recognize that generates money too. I mean, I, yeah. let, let's face it. It's still, you know, you got the right idea here. Uh, uh, economic in nature has always driven the water law. And when your values are tied into the great land and water we have and the preservation of it, well, then we need a water system that's responsive to that. Well, we figured it out. We don't let the federal courts run our river systems under the Endangered Species Act. We've been proactive. We're, we're adopting minimum stream flows, uh, seasonal flows to make sure there's uh, pulse flows, you know, when you need to move the sediment, uh, you know, take account of when the fish spawn, reservoir releases during the dry summer times, you know, uh, managing these compact deliveries so we're integrating, we're optimizing, as the water cases say we should do, optimizing, stretching as far as possible the public's water resource, but recognizing that water rights are valuable use rights. They're a form of property. Judges like me, well, I'm retired now for a week, <laughs> you know, but when I did the job for 19 years, I felt I had taken an oath to the federal and state constitution to protect people's property rights against taking without just compensation. So I've been in on this water policy since 1975 and law when I came to the attorney general's office out of EPA as a, as a young attorney and recognizing that we had been blessed in this state with this prior appropriation doctrine. All we needed to do was work on the flexibility piece of it. Yeah, ter terrific. Well, Justice Hobbs, you have been absolutely fantastic sharing with us a lot of the background and history of how the West developed with prior appropriation and, and your experiences with the Colorado Foundation for Water Education. So I just want to thank you very much for your time. And for those folks who want to find out more about you and what we've spoken about today, where would you send them? Well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the webpage. You'll find me there. I've given a lot of water talks. Uh, I, I'm now going to probably take on teaching at DU uh, Law School, so that's where I may hang out. But uh, uh, check the Water Foundation publications, you know. I've authored a number of them, and I continually work on reviewing all of them, and that's where I would send people right now. Don't don't talk about me so much as what's been in place and what we need to carry forward as Coloradans. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. I hope you liked that interview with Justice Hobbs. What a terrific man and public servant that the people of the state of Colorado are fortunate to have had serving them for so long. Well, my big takeaway from the interview was the doctrine of prior appropriation is at its core based in economics. You know, the repairing system, should, have, should it have been implemented in the West, would have resulted in potential monopolization of the water rights uh, that would have been a disincentive for economic development. You know, I, I took an economics and law class in college, and we read a lot of authors advocating for the link between law and economics. You know, people like Coase, Posner, and others. There's a lot of persuasion in those arguments that they advance. Uh, so I shouldn't have been surprised that the legal doctrine of prior appropriation really does have its roots in economic policy, and Justice Hobbs did an absolutely fantastic job of laying out how the doctrine of prior appropriation works and comparing and contrasting it a little bit. He, you know, he, he talked about how Colorado does it versus how California does it uh, and how, how the, the method California chose to deal with 
their water law has got them into some trouble. I know they're they're trying to rectify that by tying groundwater back to surface water, uh, but that's a few years off now. In any event, I think Justice Hobbs made some some very good points and really, uh, as you would expect from a man of his stature, has uh, so much great great knowledge about water law. And we could have we could have plowed much deeper into that, but we you know we ran out of time. So um, I also think that uh, Justice Hobbs' involvement in the Colorado Foundation for Water Education uh, again just shows his dedication uh, to this important issue. This you know issues on water law, on water in general. Uh, it just shows his dedication uh, to those issues. And if you want to find out more about the Colorado Foundation for Water Education, you can go to their website. You can also tune into the interview uh, that I did with Nicole Seltzer back in session 11 of the Water Values podcast. And that is, uh, you can find that at the water, you can find the show notes for that at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 11. You know, back to water law and water policy. I'm curious about your thoughts on water policy today and how the law and economics interrelate with that water policy. So please let me know by commenting on the show notes for this session about that or anything else that you thought was noteworthy during the interview. Uh, And you can find those show notes at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 70. You could also email me at david at thewatervalues.com and you can tweet at me at DTM1993. And if you do tweet at me, please use the hashtag watervalues. And as I stated at the top of the show, please do me a favor and rate and review the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, or any other podcast directory that you listen to the show on. You can also sign up for the Water Values newsletter and take the listener survey to let me know about topics you'd like to hear more about at thewatervalues.com. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource, so please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning into the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Colorado and Indiana, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. And information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.